if you'll be turning to Deuteronomy 31 and Ephesians 2 on the way to uh, where we're at in Psalm 119, get Deuteronomy 31 left hand, Ephesians 2 on the right. Um, and I, you know, and I enjoy Sunday nights. I, uh, you know, teach Sunday night a different way than we do on Sunday morning. Try and make Sunday morning really broadly evangelistic. Um, what, what we teach in institute is a whole different animal, also. But Sunday nights, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to, uh, you know, wear everybody out necessarily with a lot of Bible study. But I do think that the Bible study aspect of what we do on Sunday night ought to show you how to study your Bible, if that makes sense. And as with anything else in your life, um, uh, you know, any, any subject, any topic, any, anything that you master, there are usually just, there is a basic structure. And if you have a good teacher, and that teacher can kind of give you that structure to climb up on and pretty soon you feel like yeah I think I kind of know that I know it I know how to do it uh, I know the fundamental aspects of it I know what to do and not do I'm, I'm trained in that area uh, and you know and it kind of flows likewise with the Bible I'm going to say there are just ruling lines ruling lines of biblical revelation so in other words most of us when it comes time to uh, get something down on paper uh, we like lined paper, don't we? We like, we like lines, and we like margins, and whether it's wide-lined or college-ruled or whatever, um, you know, we just find it easier and better if we kind of know where the lines are and we put it down in that way. God has done the same thing with the Bible, um, but it does need to be pointed out to you, and it's like, okay, there's the, there's the, there's the boundary there is the uh, lane line, and, you know, there is Jew, Gentile, and church, and, you know, there's certain lanes in the Bible, and all of it's for us, but not all of it is written to us, and, and if you don't stay in your lane, everything gets messed up. So once you kind of understand or you get down some of the ruling lines for biblical revelation, that makes it a lot easier. So as we go through Psalm 119 together, you know, probably each time we get together, we'll try and give, you know, a little bit of something uh, uh, along those lines. Now, so, uh, somebody, Deuteronomy 31, who wants to stand up in, in their good uh, outside uh, playground voice? Read verses 16, 17, and 18. Deuteronomy 31, verses 16 to 18. Any volunteers? Uh, yeah, Deuteronomy thirty-one sixteen. Good, thank you. So now, there in Deuteronomy thirty-one, verses sixteen and eight, sixteen to eighteen, and God is telling Moses what to tell the people, and and God is forewarning Moses about what is going to happen in the future. So. Um, God has foreknowledge, so he knows what's going to happen in advance. He stands outside of time. Everything that happens exists within him, so he knows the, the end of a thing, even as he starts at the beginning of it. But, man, our God is so great. He's such a great God. He's so big that he can know all that without, uh, and know the end and know what's going to happen without locking us in and preventing us from having free will. So, so, 
As you look at verses 16, 17, and 18, um, just describe for me in general the covenant. What was the covenant like that God had with Israel? What strikes you out of this passage regarding the covenant, what Paul calls the covenants of promise that God had made with Israel? What, what is kind of a characteristic feature you could pick out of these particular verses regarding the covenant God had made with Israel? They did go on to serve other gods. Now what happens when they do that? Okay, so God's jealous, so God's so so okay, so God makes a covenant with Israel. He's given certain promises to them. But what happens? If Israel doesn't follow through on what they are supposed to do, what do we call that type of covenant? Conditional covenant. It was not unconditional. It had certain conditions and stipulations and, you know, everything that the genie in Aladdin said. You know, there's certain provisos here and uh, quid pro quos. And, and so the covenant with Israel was like that. Now, who is at Ephesians chapter 2? Stand up and read. Somebody stand up and read verses 8 and 9. Wow. Now, what's the difference there? In terms of the relationship we have with God, the promises He's made with us, the covenant we have with Him, the new covenant, New Testament, new covenant, well, it's unconditional. There's no quid pro quo, there's no proviso, there's nothing like that. Now, so here we got Israel. So, as we get back into Psalm 119... And we find that the Word of God is talked about in almost every single verse. But many times the word that is used for the Word of God has something to do with the law. Law, statutes, judgments, ordinances. So out of the ten different synonyms used for the Word of God itself, several of them have to do with the law. So... So what we get out of this is that, okay, if in an Old Testament setting, the law and keeping that law and, and, and being faithful to God's covenant was a key that was going to get you through so that God could bless you and God would bless the land and everything associated with it, well, what's going to happen? Once the church has been raptured, God goes back to dealing with the Jew again and the tribulation takes place. So now you can see how Psalm 119 and many of the reasons why David uses the words that he does for the word of God. When he talks about the law, it's just a key to the Jews' survival in the tribulation because God's relationship with them was based upon a conditional covenant. Our relationship with God, unconditional. That is why when we get, get, you know, when we get past the book of Malachi, it is called by the English word testament. So we've got a new testament. They had an old covenant 
and uh, we've just got a new thing. So those laws, the commandments, the judgments, statutes, the ordinances, key ingredients for Old Testament Israel to survive, uh, for them to conquer, for them to be a light to the nations. Once you know that, it makes it all the more easier to understand the inspirational application to us of Psalm 119, because if we've got a relationship with God based on grace, how much more is the word of God going to do the work for us when, when, when we follow through on it and we make life application, we apply it in our life. So, so keep that in mind as we go through these sections in Psalm 119. Uh, here's, here's, you know, in one sense, here's David trying to survive and get his kingdom going in the Old Testament. In another sense, here's Jesus, the Messiah, um, as he is doing his earthly ministry. And in another sense, here is the Jew in the tribulation. He's got to run every thought through the law, through their covenant with God, so that God will do for them all that he promised from Exodus to Deuteronomy. By the same token, we get to run all of our life through the word of God. Because then, by grace, God does it all for us. So now we have mentioned there are 22 sections in Psalm 119. One section for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The... um, the vowels, you could not buy a vowel in Hebrew. You can't buy a vowel. The vowels were understood. They didn't have separate letters for the vowels. They still today do not have separate letters for the vowels. They um, use a system of uh, dots and, and points around the other consonants to tell you what the vowel sound should be. So, so instead of 26 letters like we have, they have 22 letters. And in Psalm 119, there are eight verses for each one of those 22 letters. Uh, because in the Bible, in biblical numerology, the number eight is associated with new things, new beginnings. And if Israel is in the tribulation, then Jesus the day star is about to come back. And a new kingdom with a new millennium is about to begin a new world order. How many, how many centuries have we've been, we been talking about that? And you know, us Americans being the new Romans, that was always our thing. All you have to do is take out a piece of your American money, and you'll find on it the Latin words that say new world order. So we thought in 1776, what we were doing was starting a new world order. Uh, you know, and that went along, and, and that's gone fine. But, and however, in 1991, when we went into the Middle East, and we kicked Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait, well, what did we say then? Okay, this resets everything. Because, you know, in ter- context, in terms of what was happening at the time, uh, uh, the Berlin Wall fell, um, Ceausescu, the dictator of Romania, fell. The, uh, so really, the Soviet empire disintegrated, and then we go in to the Middle East and, you know, kick butt and take names. 
Well, obviously then. We got another new world order. Same thing was said after World War II, right? I mean, World War I, we sent doughboys. Why did they call us doughboys? It's like, hold it. What do you mean, doughboy? <laughs> I don't just eat donuts. Um, but, but okay, we sent, we, we sent you know, people over to Europe. I mean, uh, reluctantly, because we never wanted to get involved in their mess. But, you know, finally push came to shove. And so we went over there and at the end of World War I, every boot came back. Every boot came back. Well, when we had to go back over there within 25 years, no, we have military bases in however many hundred, hundreds of countries we got military bases in. And we've got thousands of boots in, in Germany, in Italy, in, and, and now in the newer NATO countries that even border Russia itself. So we're sending more boots there. So when we came back after World War I, and because we won, we were the winners, all the gold came to us. Okay, we set up a new world order. We set up, we set up a one-world currency. Everything is dollar-denominated. International Monetary Fund. There is no IMF of the euro. So, that, so the, we've got a one-world currency already. So all of that's in place, you know, Bretton Woods Accords that we did. Okay, so we've got a, we've got a new world order then. Then, we, then 1991, we've got to establish another new world order. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen now. I, I mean, I, I, I know that, you know, Putin has, has put his nuclear forces on high alert. Because he's kind of been, you know, made to look bad a little bit. I know that Russian state television makes comments like this. You know, we've got 500 nuclear warheads just on our submarines. We could take care of America and NATO to boot. And what good is a world with Russia not in it? So that's the type of thing that Russian state television is saying to Russians. Um, so, I, you know, one thing that you, you, know, you can never count on and measure exactly is how crazy a crazy person will get. And who, you know, who thought that he would go to this degree and do that? Well, now that he has and we're doing other things, and I understand, well, we're mainly doing economic things. Yes, that's why the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Hello, somebody. It is because we sanctioned them for what they were doing in China and other places. And yes, that did hit them hard. So they attacked us. So, I mean, who knows where this is going to go? All, all I know, all I know is that at this point, it is not the millennium yet. And every time we think we got a new world order going that's any good, it gets messed up. Um, and, and even if we think that we are going to be able to lay out a new utopia by reason of us Romans conquering our Carthage completely, uh, it's, you know, it's just not going to quite go down like that uh, until Jesus comes back. So, so uh, when Christ returns, there at day star arises, there will be then the utopia that every philosopher has longed for, the new world order that every government's tried to bring in. So each of these sections is reflecting uh, 
an exercise that Israel has walked through and that we need to walk through with them. First eight verses, Aleph. All eight verses begin with the Hebrew letter A or Aleph. And verses 1 to 8, as we saw, talk about the blessings of walking with God in obedience. Verses 9 to 16, the Hebrew letter bait. And it's talking about the way of cleansing. And now we are in a section, verses 17 to 24, that we did not finish last time. And so we got to, I, I am intent on getting it finished this time. And uh, Lord willing, we even roll into the next session some tonight. Uh, but the third section, it is a Hebrew letter, Gimel, uh, which gives us a reflection on the mercy of God. We had left off last time at verse 22. Who has verse 22? Wants to stand up and just read verse 22 for us in, the, in their playground voice. Remove from me. Now, okay, now put yourself in David's place, the Messiah's place, June the Tribulation's place. This is, this is absolutely messianic because it's Jesus. And it's, and it's Jesus at the time of his scourging. It's Jesus at the time of his trial. It's Jesus going through the rejection, the reproach and the contempt that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians, all, I mean, they didn't get along with each other except on one thing. They knew they had to get rid of Jesus. For us, what we see is that those who disdain God's word are always going to attack those who adhere to God's word. But what's this tell us? Don't counterattack your enemies. That's the way of the world. You know, the way of the world is, okay, well, what goes around comes around. Or if you're going to push against me, I'm going to push back on you even harder. And uh, that is a, I don't know what you'd call it, a jungle law of survival that uh, is as true in the corporate jungle as any place else. And people just get that in their mind as a mindset. And yet the Bible tells us, no, I can show you a better way. This is a better way. This is God's way. If you do it this way, God will be involved in what the outcome is going to be. That ought to be more important than getting a good outcome. So, okay, don't counterattack your enemies for coming at you. And I think there are few things in life, apparently, and I'll just say this, you know, if I were to, uh, if I were to go through all my counseling notebooks, so I, so I have all these steno pads. I like using a steno pad when I do counseling because it's got, it's got ruled lines and then, a, and then a line down the middle. Most steno pads got a line down the middle. So, uh, you know, somebody comes in for counseling. Well, invariably, I'm, I'm you know, I'm not going to speak without listening. So I listen for 40 minutes and, uh, you know, I'll write down, I'll take notes mainly to myself about what I don't want to forget to say because I don't want to interrupt. So I'll take notes about what's going on. And on the right hand column, I'll be able to put 
comments and that I know I want to get to or answers that, that I know that I have for them. And, and so, okay, what, what I, if I were to take my various uh, notebooks from all the years and flip through those, um, what I would say is that there is almost nothing harder in life than being scorned. So a lot of marital counseling is because somebody feels disrespected. I mean, a lot of family counseling is because somebody feels disrespected. Uh, you know, on one side or the other, either the parents or the kids or, or whatever, okay. Uh, so it is difficult. One of the most difficult things in life is to be scorned. But you know what? All you have to do is keep going. All you have to do is keep going. And we've gotten away from the understanding that, you know, if I just keep going, I get such a victory that outshines and overshadow, overshadows all the scorning they were giving. And all it does is, all, it ha- all you have to, have to have is time in order to prove it out and, and prove, you know, what's happening. So instead of listening to Satan's slander, Meditate on God's truth. That is the way to keep your mind clear and your faith confident. Verse 22, remove from me. Now that word remove is, it means a, there is a heavy burden from which you need relief. Now I'm sure that There have been people in your life who have said bad things about you. And if they're sitting next to you, just keep looking straight up here. Just keep looking straight at me. They will never know you were thinking about them. But uh, have you ever been ridiculed for your belief in the Bible? Have you ever been ridiculed for what church you go to? Have you ever been ridiculed because you have such faith in the Word of God? Have you been ridiculed because you believe in creation? Instead of evolution. Have you ever been ridiculed because you, you actually you know, know that God spoke and you have those words right there in front of you? Has anybody ever said anything bad about you because of what you believe about the Bible? Have you ever been ridiculed for your love of the word of God? Because that's the context David is talking about here. Uh, do you even love it enough to be ridiculed over it? See, this, this verse makes the connection between the request and the reason for the cry. So the, the, the request and the reason for the cry, and that leads to consecration. Look at verse 23, because verse 23 gives us a contrast between the haughty princes and the humble pilgrim. Somebody read verse 23 in your playground voice. Wow, I mean, there's a world of counseling right there. I mean, there's a, there, there's a solution right there. So, you know, so here's, here's someone, and it's not just anyone who's putting you down or speaking against you. It is princes, so it is, it is unjust. It is, uh, you know, it, it just shouldn't, shouldn't be and it shouldn't happen. What does David and what does... Christ, the son of David, say that he's going to do in response to that. Well, I meditated in your statutes. I mean, that made me stop 
and think and evaluate what is happening by what the Word of God says. So let me just take that word princes and explode it a little bit. I'm going to say that princes can, uh, can include the heads of families or a family member. Uh, it can include, uh, you know, in David's case, the head of tribes. Uh, I think it could have included soldiers or officers of his court. You know, there was a time. When David was on the run from Saul and he'd had all these men who uh, came to him with their families when he was at the cave of Adullam and he took them and he formed them into an army and then he led them out on the run and they uh, even go into Philistine territory and uh, that's all fun and games until he goes out to raid the Philistines without them knowing he's the one doing the raiding. And uh, a party of another group of peoples comes in and raids the camp, takes away all the wives and the kids and all the spoil and takes off. And David and his men come back, they, they see what has happened. And in that moment, they wanted, they wanted to stone him. His own, the princes, wanted to stone him. And I think, you know, he did what Paul had to do on certain occasions and just, just strengthen himself in the Lord. This is what he did. He, he meditated in God's statutes and God spoke to him and said, okay, do this and you're going to get it all back. Let me give you a plan. Uh, if you think about Moses, Moses had similar experience a couple of, three times probably in the Old Testament. So here's uh, you know, here's Moses, and uh, Moses is uh, doing his thing, and uh, his brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, get in his face because he married an Ethiopian woman. So they get in his face, and you know, I find that in these times, whether it was Korah who was coming against him or his own family or any other princes, I think this is why it is said that Moses was the meekest person on the face of the earth so so here's Moses and here's the people coming against him and when they came against pushing against him instead of him pushing back against them he just fell on his face and then that person coming against him had to deal directly with God who was behind him backing him up Ah, okay, so David does the same thing, Moses does the same thing, that shows us something, we ought to be doing the same thing, princes speak against us, okay, um, call, call a timeout, at least in your heart, take a minute, meditate on God's statutes, let him give you a plan, and then follow through on what he gives you. And we all understand, it says princes, and princes can harness the power of the state, But the pilgrim has the weapon of Scripture. We have our own weapons. We have the weapon of Scripture. I think Bible believers are often, even in America, we are considered uh, with contempt by those who are cultured. You know, we're some type of rube because of what we believe and... You know, and all of that, and so Bible believers are often regarded that way. And yet, what, you know, one thing that you need to pick out of verse 23, and uh, whether or not it's on your outline sheet, you ought to make a note. 
negativity can always be neutralized by meditation in God's Word. Because here's the problem. If they are negative against you, our automatic response is to be negative back. The only way to short-circuit that is to take their negativity and for you to go to the Word of God to meditate and neutralize that and then follow the plan God gives you in His Word. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of God rule in your heart. God will give you a plan and do what God gives you peace to do and then don't second-guess it because you got peace about it. So turn to, uh, keep your finger here, Psalm 119, but go uh, back a little ways to Psalm 76 and then back even further to Psalm 11. Psalm 76, Psalm 11. If I were to take an example illustration out of church history, just uh, so, you know, this can can be a multi-orb thing on Sunday night, not just even Psalm 119, not even just how to study your Bible. Maybe I'll just throw a little bit of church history in. Everything changed with Constantine in 313 AD because he adopted the name Christian. He made Christianity the imperial religion because he he was the contender for the throne who won. And because he won, he he got to write the history. And at that moment... 313, uh, he decided, you know, enough with all of these gods. I, I need to use religion as a mechanism of solidifying my state, and I think I can do that better with Christianity than anything else. And so it, everything changed in 313. But immediately prior to that, the emperor was Diocletian. He was emperor from 284 to 305, so really 20 years. Uh, he was aided by a junior Caesar named Galerius, starting in 293. Uh, Diocletian um, really set up a new world order because he went through and he reorganized all of the Roman uh, bureaucracy and he, he was able to set up the greatest bureaucratic government in the history of the Roman Empire. And so from 303 AD to 311, um, he led the empire's largest and bloodiest persecution of believers. So believers were burned, their Bibles were burned, This explains a lot about why the church that emerges under Constantine looks so different than the one which ends the book of Acts. Uh, Rome had an agenda. Now, they, they had about 10 different persecutions. This one was the worst. And whenever you're in a society like many of the Islamic republics today where they kill their converts, I mean, it's just tough. It's tough to be a missionary. Uh, There are reasons why some of the least reached are least reached. They kill their converts. 
And a lot of the places, um, you know, you can go in initially under the radar and you can do the work God gives you to do with the, with the souls that he gives you. But whenever you get too big, then princes without a cause come down on you and beat that down and, you know, deport the missionary and, and uh, you know, persecute the Christians. There's as much persecution of true believers going on today as there ever was, I think, in ancient history. But okay, so so here they are. They've kind of killed all the true believers. Now, any true believers that are left are probably willing to compromise. And that's why it looks so different. But Diocletian died insane, more interested in cabbages than Christians. Read the history. Galerius died eaten up of a uh, gruesome, loathsome disease. And the fact that we have no complete Bible manuscript, no, no book with the complete Bible in it prior to 331 AD is testament to the thoroughness of the destruction of both the people of God and the Word of God at that time, and it was it was because of you know uh, Diocletian's work that it was so easy for Constantine to come in, set up an imperial church, marry marry the church and the world together, so that Christianity was now state 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 supported paganism, <laughs> you know really. Psalm 76. Psalm 76. Somebody stand up and read verse 10. Psalm 76, verse 10. Okay, so even as bad as it was in the darkest days of the church, which, you know, will only mirror the dark days of the tribulation for the Jew, even at that time, God still was in control. You know, things are up in the air. I don't know what to say. Um, but wars have always existed. Fear God. Financial markets have always been in turmoil. Fear God. Um, God was in control even of that situation. And the Bible that he had banned and burned still survives today. Psalm 11, here's the situation, however, that we find ourselves in many times. Somebody, somebody read Psalm 11, verse 3. Now, I don't know if you've ever felt like that or not, right? Because there are times when the margins are, are um, a blurry and the lines have been erased and it's like all the rules have been broken and, and you, you um, uh, can't put all the pieces together because you don't have every piece. And so the puzzle is always obscure and it's not like Wordle. Now, how many of you play Wordle? Any, any of you play Wordle? Like, are you pretty successful at Wordle? So I, you know, I was just reading something that somebody said today, kind of throwing shade on Wordle. Because basically they said, look, you can probably get this right every time. So, <laughs> so for you to publish, you know, your score and all that, it's kind of like just putting up your birth date. <laughs> now, I don't know. I've never played Wordle. 
So I've never played Wordle. I, I, you know, I don't know if exactly like that or not. But I, I do know that, you know, if you are trying to put together a crossword puzzle and you don't have every piece of it, you know, it can be impossible to do. So, okay, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, in Psalm 11, they had not gotten yet to Psalm 119 because here is what we can do when we go through trying times where the foundations, the very foundations have been destroyed. Back to Psalm 119, look at verse 24. Here's what we can do. Somebody stand up and read verse 24. Aha! Not the famous pretty princes of verse 23, but the testimonies of verse 24. That's what I can do. I can, I can let my counseling and my counselors be the word of God. So, so if you have a King James reference Bible with center column references, you probably notice that there is a letter or number by that, um, by that, by those last two words, my counselors. And if you trace it to the center column, it will, the King, the, the James gang, the King James translators tell you in the margin that this could also be translated, men of my counsel. Thy testimonies are my delight and the men of my counsel. Solomon is better than psychology. Hello, somebody. I'm just saying, I didn't tell you to stop taking your medication. Okay, don't stop taking your medication until a doctor tells you you can stop taking your medication. But I'm just saying, Solomon is better than psychology. David is better than Darwin. Uh, the Word of God is better than the Wall Street Journal. Or whatever your chosen, you know, your outlet of choice is. I mean, I... You know, I'm just, I'm just so totally apolitical. It is just so, it, you know, it's just so funny to me because, you know, oh, you know, one one outlet rails against another outlet for being, um, you know, part of the mainstream media. When when they, you know they use the same mainstream airwaves as the other media does, and they are as popular, or they make as much money, or it is all just, you know. So it's like, it's like okay. Uh, you know, I have, I have my Will Rogers view of politicians. They are all, uh, crazy. And, it uh, doesn't matter who. So I don't, I mean, I don't mean, mean to be, you know, a cynic. Cause we should be patriotic. We should vote. We should vote our conscience. We should vote our values. We should do all of that. So I don't have any problem with that. As a matter of fact, politics is probably fine. It's politicians that, that, that usually are the problem. So, okay, so we, so what happens is, and I think what we forgot was, is we always, as Americans, we tend to, you know, we're for the underdog and we elect the outsider, but we forgot as soon as we elect them, they're not the outsider anymore, they're part of the elite. So it's like, okay, I mean, the whole system is set up to be that way, that's why that's, uh, you know, that's not my Messiah. Jesus is. That's not my solution. Psalms is. I can get things out of the Word of God that's going to meet my needs and of my family and of my community and of my society. And 
If I participate, maybe it will also, you know, help out politics and legislation and other things as well. So, yeah, if all of that's true, if verse 24 is true, it's better to go to the scriptures than to any other solution. Psycho- psycho- psychological solution, political solution, you know, anything else. Because not only will the word of God diagnose our problem, it can transform our personality. So seek the counsel of God's word instead of the counsel of worldly people. Make God's testimonies your delight and the men of your counsel. Uh, Come what may, we find the answers in the Bible. They're all there. Don't let anybody ever fake you out and make you think that the Bible is not sufficient. So you'll notice the key thought that we've given you for this section, the mysterious, well, actually, so that would have been on last week's handout, key thought, the mysterious power residing in God's book is imparted to you by reading God's book. And a last thing I gave you last week, and again, there are probably a few on the ledge over there of last week's handouts, 10 wondrous things. So, so Psalm 119, verse 18, talks about the wondrous things in the law. Uh, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Okay, I, I've, I listed for you in the la- handout from last time, 10 things that the Bible says are wondrous. God's works, God's dealings, Joel 2.24, God's word, God's knowledge of his providence, uh, the child born and the son given, Isaiah 9.6, in other words, Jesus. God's counsel, Isaiah 28.29, God's kindness and loving kindness, Psalm 31 and Psalm 17, God's voice, Psalm 37, 5, the, 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 uh, the same Jesus who was rejected being accepted is a wondrous thing, Matthew 21, 42, and God's light, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. So now we've got uh, almost 15 minutes left. So if I could get a uh, brown, brown noser or two, a couple of, couple of brown nosers that would like uh, some brownie points, which will be worth absolutely nothing at the judgment seat of Christ. But at least for tonight, I'll thank you. Uh, uh, you know, one or two people maybe that want to help uh, hand these. Everybody gets one of these. And uh, sure, yeah, just pass it around. Till everybody has a copy. So this is the next section that we want to get into. So, so in the few minutes we have left, and just to kind of uh, get us exposed to this next section, uh, how about if we do our discovery Bible study method, and uh, that way maybe you can you know, see what we're doing and even take it and use it maybe in some setting of your own uh, if you want to. So I've printed out for you here the next section of eight verses verses 25 to 32 of Psalm 119. So now, I would like um, eight people to stand up. One, two, three, four, five, six, who am I missing? Seven, eight, okay? So, 
So let's just, uh, since I don't remember what order you stood up, stood up in, let's just go from my left to right. And so Julie's going to read verse 25, then verse 26, uh, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31. I guess we've got one extra person standing up. Uh, and uh, so uh, 32. And, and so as soon as Julie gets done, then the next person, so we're going to go through all eight verses, everybody else looking on their sheet, and one person per verse going to go down through these verses. So Julie, you start us off. Okay, so thank you. You can be seated. So now as we look at those particular verses that are located here, um, if we're trying to think, well, what's the theme of these particular eight sections? We're probably going to look for things that kind of stick out to us and stick together. So maybe things are mentioned multiple times. And, uh, you know, so let's think about going through the verses in this way. Who, would, who, who else besides the eight who just stood up? Give me one more person that wants to own verse 25. Stand up and help me with it. Okay? So in verse 25... If I look at verse 25, uh, th- this is a softball, but what word is used for the word of God in verse 25? Yeah, so that's an easy one. I mean, that in, 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 uh, mo- in, in all but one of the other verses, there's a different synonym used. But okay, so it talks about the word. The word. Okay, somebody else stand up with verse 25, wants to help us own it. And uh, suggest to us what the verbs are, the verb or verbs, verb is or the verbs are in verse 25. Okay, cleaveth is one, and quicken. Now, but now hold it before you sit down. Who cleaves? Me. My soul cleaves. I cleave. Who quickens? Exactly. Thou, quicken thou me. Okay. So that's verse 25. Verse 26. Who wants to help own verse 26? Stand up. Okay, so with verse 26, what word is used for the word of God in verse 26? Statutes. And then what, what, is, what is the verb or the verbs here in verse 26? Okay. Declared her. Okay. And who declared? Okay, so I declared, who, who hears? So God hears, who teaches? God teaches also. But isn't that kind of interesting? I mean, it doesn't start off with, teach me your word, and then I'll declare your ways. I mean, look at, look at the order here. First, I declared your ways so that you would teach me your word. Hmm, that's kind of interesting. Verse 27. Anybody want to help us own verse 27? So, Christy, what is, uh, what is the word for the word in verse 27? Okay, God's precepts. And what are the verbs in verse 27? Okay, so make to understand, and then I shall talk. And 
and and and both of those are so okay one is god is acting on me make me to understand and the other i am then acting on others I'll, so i'll talk okay so verse 28 who wants to help us own verse 28 okay so andrea so verse 28 well what's the word for the word Word. And, okay, so verse 28, what are the verbs? Hmm. So, and, and, so who melts? So my soul melts, and who strengthens? God strengthens. Now that's a good thing to know. God strengthens when I am melting. So let's take those first four verses, 25, 26, 27, and 28. And uh, let's, uh, let's just, uh, in five minutes we got left, begin a little bit of examination. At least let me get through kind of a maybe introductory piece uh, to this. Uh, basically, uh, this is the theme I got, I got out of this section. And I list, list it as the thesis, I think, uh, which is on your handout. A song of devotion will overcome a spirit of depression. So this is the fourth section, which would basically match our letter D, and the Hebrew letter is Daleth. So Daleth is their letter D, and it is also used for the number four. So just like with Roman numerals, where they would use a Roman letter, to stand in the place of a number instead of the uh, Arabic numeral system that we use. Hebrews did the same, and each one of those letters stood for a number, so this stood for number four. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, my favorite preacher, says that David sings of depression, but in the spirit of devotion, determination, and dependence. Now, I, I kind of like that. I kind of think that's cool because, I do, you know, and I don't mean to downplay uh, depression in any respect. Uh, you know, because I've been there too. Uh, you know, I think in our day and age, there's probably nobody that does not at some point in their life face some time that's just so dark that, you know, you just want to be on the floor in a fetal position. And yet, nobody died from, nobody ever died from that. Uh, you know, unfortunately, there are individuals who, who choose not to go on because of that. But nobody ever really died from it. And, you know, what Spurgeon says, and what I think David is going to lead us to, is that in going through those times of depression which in our Western Roman mindset, we are taught that um, we should get an immediate fix to and not, not even have, uh, you know, not that we can't admit to it, but we shouldn't, we should not view it patiently and we shouldn't endure it. We should always seek that thing that is always going to fix it. Uh, but uh, the, what David's going to show us here, uh, as, as Spurgeon talks about, is just approach it with a spirit of devotion, determination, and dependence. 
the Hebrew letter Dalif, so, so Hebrew letters are pictographs like Chinese characters are. And Aleph was a picture of what? Does anybody remember? An ox. Well, Dalif signifies a door or, or entering into a new phase. Now, in this case, I think what we're going to see in this section is it's kind of entering into battle because this section shows us the psalmist's response to resistance against the word. Now, that's always depressing, but his response is going to be devotion, determination, and dependence. And I am going to say that that is restorative and it is critical. You've got to start off with a longing for comfort from the word, not from anything else, not from other things, which, which does not mean that some other things cannot be comforting or that you shouldn't take advantage of them. But your longing has to be to get comfort from the word. And this whole section is going to expose for us the condition of heart that is needed in order to experience and profit from the word of God. So this section divides evenly into two parts, which is why I stopped uh, our our, uh, exegetical examination after the first four verses. So he deals with his handicap, verses 25 to 28, which is what we read about. And then we will see him deal with his conquest, verses 29 to 32. And uh, the clock is telling me I've got 57 seconds left, and I don't want to keep you long from getting, you know, picking up the kids. So this is probably good enough with that kind of introduction and um, appetizer, hors d'oeuvre, to, to this next section. We'll stop there at that spot, Lord willing. Uh, you know, next Sunday night we'll pick it up from there and be able to d- dive into this. I think very important section because it deals with what we, you know, what we all go through. What, you know, we need to have some insight that we can give others right now, particularly at this period of time. There have always been wars and financial upheaval. Fear God. Instead of fearing all this other stuff that we don't even know how bad it's going to get, because once you decide that, okay, we're going we're gonna to punish them by cutting off banks from the SWIFT system and all of that, ah, you know, I, th- I think we wait to see um, just what, what, is, what that is going, what the ripples of that are going to be on Monday morning. And, uh, you know, possibly not just gas prices. And they've shut off European airspace to all Russian airplanes. Now, it would be more critical if they created a no-fly zone in Ukraine, but we haven't gone there. Uh, They've just decided Aeroflot cannot fly in NATO countries, so that's most of Russia. I'm just just saying that's going to, I mean, we don't even know where this is going to go. I think as Christians, we need to be in that spot where we not only know how to handle um, that effect on us emotionally and psychologically and mentally and otherwise, 
But since so much of what we see in our society, they say, can be traced back to mental health issues, this is going to be a really important section of Psalm 119. It's going to help fix us up on that. So go ahead and stand and bump elbows with your neighbor. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you tonight because not only is the word of God perfect, and here we are in a psalm where there are 22 sections of eight verses each, and it's all perfectly laid out. But Lord, your timing is perfect. And Lord, we believe you brought us to the spots that you brought us to. Romans 16 this morning, um, Psalm 119, this section tonight. I think, Lord, you brought us to the spots. You intersected. You have intersected our life. I know sometimes we can feel like, how come I prayed and God didn't intervene? Why didn't God show up? Why didn't he? One? No. I mean, all we got to do is come to church on Sunday. And we can see the intervention of God. Because you're meeting us right where we're at. You, always, you do that primarily with your word because you want to guide us. And bring us to your word, because that is the thing that is going to do the work. And so you've brought us to your word tonight. You have intersected our lives with the things that are said here, and we can see are going to be said in this next section. So, Lord, we we thank you. If we could just raise a hallelujah uh, for what you've done in our life. And, Lord, pray that you would allow us to take it and use it this week. Even in the lives of others who are lost, they are so lost. And Lord, we know some people who are saved, and yet they're so lost. And they may not be eternally lost, but they're just lost. And uh, so God, use us in their lives. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.